Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Mark Vanderlei for part one of their discussion on attachment and fatherhood. Part two will be released on Tuesday, June 23rd. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, here from Chaddock. And in our podcast, we look at attachment issues, attachment research, and bridging the gap between that and clinical practice. So glad to have all of you here today. My guest today is Dr. Mark Vanderlei. I'm going to give you a little bit of background about him. And first, I want to say, though, that he is going to be talking about us and the topic related to fathers and attachment. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So Dr. Vanderlei is the owner of Connections Family Counseling. It's a counseling practice focused on building resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. He's also on the clinical faculty at Adams State University Master of Counseling Program. Dr. Vanderlei has been working with children and families for over 20 years, serving as a direct care staff in residential settings, as a youth pastor, therapist, and clinical supervisor. He is particularly passionate about fatherhood and the role of fathers in their children's physical, emotional, and spiritual development. Mark writes about fatherhood on his blog, www.parentingboysraisingmen.com. Com and is the host and producer of the Connected Family Podcast. In his free time, you'll find Mark running, reading, and exploring the family farm with his wife and four young children. I know you all are really going to enjoy this podcast, and actually, Mark happens to also be a personal friend and colleague of mine, having worked at Chaddock, where I currently work in the past. So I'm looking forward to this discussion and I know you're really going to appreciate it as well. Get ready for an immersive, in-depth series of discussions featuring the one and only Michael Trout alongside Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Coming soon to the Knowledge Center is Navigating Hollowed Ground, insights on how attachment impacts who we are and how we serve others. Using select readings from Michael Trout's upcoming book release, Michael and Karen will dive deep into four topics presented in four sessions. Participants will receive the readings prior to each meeting to deepen the discussion and enhance the experience. And since the readings come directly from Trout's book, This Hollowed Ground Four Decades in Infant Mental Health, you're getting advanced excerpts from the book. For more information or to register for the sessions, head to tkcchaddock.org. Hey, Mark, it's great to have you here today for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I get to talk about two of my passions today. Yes, yes. So attachment and fatherhood. So, you know, I shared with the listeners some of your educational background and your formal credentials. Mm -hmm. Um, You didn't have in that that one of your articles was picked up by the Huffington Post. I thought that that would have been important to say, but I guess you were were too humble to put that in there. So I'll say it now. Maybe I should start mentioning that. Yeah. 
<laughs> that was a long time ago. I'm impressed that you know that because it was. Well, that's because it's a pretty big deal when that happens. So, yeah. anyway. can I tell the story of that? <laughs> yes. I had written, so I had I've been in that period of my life. I'd been writing a blog called Parenting Boys Raising Men for a couple of years, and I became a part of an organization called Dad 2.0, which was lots of dads who were bloggers and involved in social media, and they were their mission still is to shift the view of fatherhood from sort of the bumbling buffoon as sometimes fathers are portrayed in media to more of like an engaged father who's competent and active and you know a parent not a babysitter and so i went to this conference and had the opportunity to speak as a on faith and fatherhood as a Mm -hmm. panelist and so I met the editor of Huffington Post Parenting there, and I was like, hey, I'll, you know, send you an article. And it actually, yeah, they posted it. And they That's fantastic. It. So, yeah, well, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. So so anyway, as I said, I didn't, you know, uh, speak to some of your more formal credentials. Was there anything else you would want listeners to know about your informal background, as, as I like to call it, that they should know, and how you got into all of this? Yeah. Um, you know, I just think how I got into it is I grew up in a family of servers or servants, people who worked in nonprofit organizations. I have a sister who is also a therapist who you know well, um, of course, and who worked together with us at Chaddock. And so I have just all sorts of, I think, history of serving people. And so being a therapist was probably natural for me um, Mm -hmm. in some ways. And so I grew up into that. And then when I became a father, Um, that interest in fatherhood was certainly peaked because of, of course, being a father and wanting to be a good father and struggling with that a little bit. Um, And so learning, being in school at the time, I just dove into um, attachment books and all the reading that I could do to try to figure out how do I do this? Because I have no clue uh, what's going on. Well, I think, you know, I often tell young therapists that studying attachment and attachment theory can start to make you feel a little neurotic (laughs) as, as a parent. And granted, you know, being a mother myself and a lot of the attachment literature related to mothers, um, I hadn't thought about it as much in in terms of the impact of some of that on fathers. So, so what were some of your struggles or what were some things that you were looking at in yourself um, that you were learning or wanting to change or keep the same or whatever? So I was in my master's degree program um, at the time of the birth of our first son. And I remember, so I had worked in church ministry. I was a youth director. Relationships was, were like huge. Yes. So focused on relationships and how we impact people through relationships. So that was the foundation, I think, of my interest in attachment theory and then my approach to parenting. But I think when I became a parent, I began to realize that I struggled to connect with that infant. Uh, Maybe it didn't happen in the way that I thought it was happened or thought it was supposed to happen. And I, even as I reflect on it, I'm, I tend to think of myself probably early on as a parent as rather dismissive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and thinking that parenting could be done from a distance a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, but then experienced my child as needing more than of me than that. 
mm-hmm. and really struggled to have enough to give. And so that created in me really uncomfortable feelings and difficulty and struggle with wanting to be available and be the father that I wanted to be, but not knowing how to do it. So I can think of just a story. I, I think of, you know, those early years in trying to soothe a child who maybe was a little bit difficult to soothe, you know, at least from our perspective as new parents, getting him to go to sleep and trying to get him to sleep, rocking him on my shoulder, swaying back and forth and thinking in my head as the feelings are boiling up in me, stop being such a baby. (sighs) And it's like, he is a baby. Ah. (laughs) This is what babies do. But I think of that as, man, that's my emotion and my frustration and my difficulty in regulating myself and him and so I had to figure out how to how to how do I get through this without really um exploding you know and being hard and being um a positive impact in my children's life as opposed to something that's not so positive. Yeah, and I, what I also hear in that story, Mark, is cultural impact because mm. how often is the idea said to young boys, stop crying, don't be a baby? Yeah, yeah. And so how early does that start? I mean, he was under nine months old when that I had that recollection. And so that message, although I didn't say it, certainly may have been sent to him in a nonverbal sort of way. Right. And, and was evoked in you mm-hmm. by that, whether it's your own upbringing, cultural um, pieces, all of that coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a fascinating story. And I appreciate you being vulnerable enough to share it. Yeah. Well, it was a huge, you know, I, I reflect on it and I go back to it as one of those sort of waypoints, I suppose, and thinking about my development as a therapist, as a father, and understanding what happens in me. Yes. How important it is to be aware of that, because it that's going on in session as a therapist, and that's going yes. on between me and my kids. Yes. And I need to work on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you know, that was early on. I have other stories that I could tell about my dis- dismissiveness. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe I'll share some more later. But yes, um, yes. so then I had the opportunity, uh, having moved, I was in California um, as a youth pastor at that time. And then my wife and I moved. I'd finished my master's degree. We moved to Missouri, where I was working in a residential treatment center. And I had the opportunity to be trained by Karen Buckwalter in Theraplay <laughs> even before I was employed at Chaddock. And I often say, and I know I've said this to you before, how transforming that was for me as a therapist and as a father, because as I was thinking about it, reflecting on it for our conversation today, I'm thinking, you know, really, I, I was able to figure out, I think, in that training um, the way that I could relate to my child in this playful, engaging, fun way that fit with who I was as a person. For some reason, the, the engagement of play, the activities, the theory fit with some experiences I had had previously through theater, you know, theater involvement and that sort of stuff. But yes. I didn't know, how, for some reason, I didn't know how to do that with 
my young boys. And so I recall having that training, going home and right away implementing it with them. And it was successful. And I think it transformed the way that I viewed them and probably our relationship. Wow, that's a, that's amazing. I feel honored to have been part of that process. You know, what I remember about you in that training, Mark, was, you know, you're you're kind of a quiet, introverted kind of guy. And I, I remember when we started doing these TheraPlay role plays and you were like so creative and so engaging and so active. And, and I was like, I felt like, I feel like I am watching you like embrace this other dormant part of yourself mm. because it looked like you've been doing this for a really long time and it looked like it was just like unfolding before my eyes in this very um organic creative way it was almost like um to use a, a, the word i used earlier something how this in in evoked in you uh something else that came out of you and it was just so fun to watch i like i mean i think that my very much be what it was like there must have there was something there there was a part of me that was playful in that way there was yes. a part of me that fair play really connected to and I had either if I had lost a part of that you know in, in part of or hadn't yet developed that into a, that context of being a father in that way um, it's certainly I think fair play offered the framework for me and attachment to the framework of how to be a father in this way that can be engaging and fun and playful. Yeah, it really seemed helpful. like gave you both permission to embrace that and you know mm -hmm. the science behind why mm -hmm. you would and mm -hmm. it's almost like that was sitting on the shelf inside of mm -hmm. you, but that it had to just be released, you know, yeah. because it all just came out so beautifully. It was huh. just remarkable to watch. Huh. You know, as I reflect on that, one of the things I remember thinking early as a parent was that I needed to be, I needed to learn structure. I wouldn't have called it structure, but I needed to have boundaries and have structure because that was something that I was not very good at. I was afraid of being a pushover as a parent and not having enough of the sort of rule side of it. So I wonder if like, I kind of leaned on that pretty early on and then, you know, fair play helped me to find that there's a balance there that I can be structured and I can have boundaries and um, provide that for my children, but also be playful and engaging. And, yes. you know, so then it allowed for that to come out in a balanced way as, rather than more focused on that boundary way. Yeah, yeah, well, good. Um, Who knew this was gonna be therapy for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the truth is, you know, that's why we all get into this, right? That's the, yeah. that's the truth, the, the big secret. Yeah. Um, so then on to your dissertation, and you studied the, qual the quantity of presence versus quality of relationship, and certainly that relates to attachment. Yeah, I mean, I did it in sort of not in a real direct way. Yes, of course. But, um, so my dissertation, I completed it a year and a half or so ago on the way to my uh, PhD in counselor education and supervision, which was an incredibly exciting experience. Um, but it was on the relationship between father emotional intelligence and parenting style. And I think as I was looking for a dissertation topic, my desire was to marry my interest in fatherhood and research and relationship with children. And so 
as I was looking into the literature and everything, I found that there was lots of literature that was really looking at the impact of father presence, like how much time fathers spend with their kids or how much time fathers don't spend with their kids. Because a lot of that early research is focused on father absence and, you know, the fact that I think like 25% of fathers don't live with their children presently and the impact that that has, and it has a significant impact. But I was really interested also in wanting to move that along a little bit in regards to what impact does the quality of relationship that a father has with their child have on physical, spiritual, and emotional development. So yes. my, my way of getting at that was to think about father emotional intelligence and whether or not there's a relationship between that and parenting style. And, and what did you find? The results show <laughs> that there is a statistically significant relationship between overall father emotional intelligence and the authoritative parenting style. So as emotional intelligence goes up, so does the authoritative style of parenting. Meaning, so there's authoritative, authoritarian, and permissive are the three main strategies. Authoritative is generally considered to be the more ideal way of parenting. And so it's good, you know, as you're, it would seem to make sense that as one's emotional intelligence goes up, they would be more authoritative, a balance of control and warmth is what that would look like. Well, yeah, and it makes me wonder, and I know there are certainly different measures, but you know, we talk a lot about mentalization and reflective function and knowing what's mm -hmm. going on in, inside of you and a, being able to imagine what's going on inside of someone else. And to me, that emotional intelligence, I know they're two different things, but you can't help but think about the overlap of some of that in one's mm -hmm. mind. Yeah, uh, and one of, one of the interesting things about the measure that I used and the sort of, there's different theories about what emotional intelligence is as well. Yes. And so the sort of philosophical approach that I took was one in which one aspect of emotional intelligence is the ability to read emotions in other people, which would sort of speak to that mental yes. part that you're talking about. Not only understand my own emotions, but also those of other people. Right, right, yes. So, Great. And so then that added another layer to your understanding and your experience with this. And what about, you know, before we start talking more directly about uh, fatherhood and attachment, I know we're going to do that in the latter part of our conversation, but um, you, you talk and write about some historical and religious motives of fatherhood and tell, tell uh, like to lay the groundwork here as our con conversation continues to go along. Share a little bit about that, please. Yeah, so as I was reading all sorts of the research about um, fatherhood in preparation for my dissertation, um, one of the things I found is that over the course of history, sort of the motifs or sort of what how we culturally viewed fatherhood has changed and pro progressed or adjusted over the course of time. So, um, you know, maybe at the turn of the, of the 19th century, fathers were considered or what a good father was, was considered to be a moral teacher or guide, sort of passing on moral values, moral beliefs, and appropriate behavior according to those moral values. Uh, and then as, the, as we became a more industrialized nation, 
which is, so I think it's interesting that it's really connected to the development of history as well in our cultural things, because as fathers went to work away from home, the role of the fatherhood, father father changed. So, you know, before when we were more agricultural in our culture, fathers were on the farm with the whole family working together. And so the family was together and that impacted the father's role in the family. But as we became more industrialized, they moved to the factory possibly for a job where they're gone all day. And then they come back in the evening and they become more of a distant breadwinner type of a role in the family. And so possibly less relationship, more authoritarian sort of an approach maybe, but less uh, involvement with the children. Um, and some part of that is kind of what I mentioned earlier in regards to my involvement with the dad 2.0 organization. Um, sometimes more pre- more, um, recently fathers have been kind of portrayed as sort of a buffoon to be made fun of, not someone who's actively engaged in caretaking a relationship, not someone who enforces structure, but just a playful buffoon who can be put down. Um, I think that's really changing in our culture. Uh, I know there's been a lot of push in even in social media and media to change that perspective on fatherhood and to portray fathers in uh, media more as an equal parent and someone who's also actively involved in caretaking and relationship. And I think that's then moved to what a lot of people in the research are calling the new nurturant father, fathers who presently are much more actively engaged in caretaking uh, even many more fathers who are stay-at-home fathers who, you know, their partner is working in the workforce, they are stay-at-home and they're the primary caretaker for the children. Which was uh, my family constellation. That's what we did. Mm-hmm. My husband was a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. And I, I think in my dissertation reading, I discovered that like the latest reports of from 2016, like over 200,000 fathers or something was the number which seems kind of small um, when you're thinking about the overall number of fathers, but it's been going up every year um, in recent decades. So, so that idea of what a father has is, or what a good father is, has kind of transitioned from that distant breadwinner, moral teacher or guide to someone who's more actively involved, more engaged, more of a nurturer than maybe in the past. And, I find that really interesting. I know that's definitely my experience. I'm sure it's your husband's experience as he was a stay-at-home father. And I think it's interesting to think of those sort of cultural motifs in light of attachment theory and uh, what we're expecting from fathers maybe to be more involved in relationships and the quality of relationship as opposed to just the provider. So that's kind of the cultural idea, the historical motifs. There's uh, also religious motifs. Um, One of them that I just recently read, I read a book called Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace by a Lutheran pastor, theologian, professor, Scott Keith. And he uses the story of the prodigal son or what he calls the, the two lost sons as sort of an illustration of how fathers can be this picture of what God's grace is to their children. And that just really impacted me in my development as a father, you know, as a Christian myself and someone whose faith is very important to me. Um, 
man, it helps me to see how much of an impact I can have in my kid's life mm-hmm. in not only their emotional and physical development, but also their spiritual development. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, before we finish up this section, you know, and, and move into um, more directly talking about fatherhood and attachment, I would imagine that you couldn't have done some of this research without coming across I guess it's more of a pop psychology phrase. I don't, I'm not quite even sure, but um, toxic masculinity. (laughs) Certainly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was just sort of kind of thinking about this, like, uh, you know, what, how does that relate to any of this discussion? And is it like, when you say like a more nurturing relational, is that, is that saying we need to go in the opposite direction of this toxic masculinity? And then I was thinking about earlier when we talked about, you know, uh, boys being conditioned that it's not okay to cry and, you know, Uh. stuff. Yeah. So I I didn't know uh, as we wind down uh, here in our first part of the podcast, if, if you wanted to share any thoughts that come to mind about that, I know you're a real thinker and I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but. No, I mean, I think this is definitely something that I've considered and thought through. Um, you know, I, I want to say that I don't see when, when I think of toxic masculinity, I don't think of that as authentic masculinity. I think of that as a distorted view of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a father. And maybe even some of those historical motifs that I think of, have thought about, you know, moral teacher, guide, distant breadwinner. I think those things could easily be distorted into something that is toxic. Right. So, so it's almost like the shadow side of some of those. Yeah, yeah. The the side that's absent of relationship. One of the things that I'm thinking of in the research that I've been really reading about fathers and attachment in particular with rough and tumble play is the importance that rough and tumble play occurs in the context of a safe relationship. Yes. And so, you know, providing structure as a male, being a breadwinner as a father and a male, absent of relationship and nurturing could I could see where that could be toxic yeah. and not not so helpful. I also love to think of sometimes when I think of hear about toxic masculinity masculinity there's like a power piece to it and where there's a misuse of power seems to be part of what the toxic part is. And again with from the sort of religious side and the Christian side of what it means to be a man. I love this word meekness mm-hmm. and um I heard a definition of meekness from someone from Meg Meeker, who's a parenting author, and she described meekness as constrained power. Whereas I have always thought of meekness as like the the really old guy with a cane who's just really weak and passive. But actually, she constrained power seems more like this incredibly powerful stallion who constrains himself in order to be gentle, who is Mm. who is controlled, who is powerful but kind and generous and that's what i think of as you know grace god's grace is incredible power but also kind and generous and forgiving and that's what fathers i think um really can be for their children is yeah we're powerful we can be physical we can play and do things differently um, in powerful ways but there's great responsibility that comes with that 
and it has to be done in the context of also safety and nurturing and yeah. Those types of things. Wow. I don't know. Beautiful. How does that strike you? That's really beautiful. And this is a, uh, I think we'll, we're going to end our part one of the podcast and building our foundation. And listeners, I'm really excited to have you join us for part two of this conversation, speaking more directly about fatherhood and attachment, what we see in some of the attachment literature. We will be also talking about, as Mark has already mentioned, rough and tumble play and some of those things. So uh, hope to see you all for part two. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Mark Vanderlei on attachment and fatherhood. Part two will be released on Tuesday, June 23rd. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 